0: Welcome to our continuing series using the Answers Bible Curriculum, second edition. Today's lesson really is the complement to what we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about how God preserves his word, and we also talked about the Old Testament, how we know the Old Testament is God's word. This week, we're talking more specifically about the canon of scripture as a whole. And when I say canon, I'm talking about the definitive standard of faith that is seen in a certain set, a divine collection of holy writings that we call God's Word. Now, we're talking today about why the canon is complete and why we believe the New Testament is also God's Word. Not just the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but both are God's Word. Now, someone may ask, based off of um, last lesson, if Scripture wasn't done in Jesus' time, how do we know it's done today? Or that some missing books didn't make it into the canon? You sometimes hear people talk about lost gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or even the Gospel of Judas. Was there a conspiracy to keep certain books out of the Bible? Or if you know church history, you know that there are other valued Christian works that were circulated in the early church that were nonetheless not considered scripture. Works like the Epistle of Barnabas, or the Shepherd of Hermas, or First Clement. If the early church thought these works were useful, why aren't they considered scripture? Or even maybe there are some books that are in our Bibles that aren't supposed to be there. You might know that Martin Luther really struggled with the book of James. To him, he said it was pure straw and contained very little useful gospel truth. Those who embrace liberalism and or that's theological liberalism and higher criticism, they question much the reliability of the New Testament. They try, based on their own assumptions and standards of what is reasonable, to decide what Jesus and the apostles really said, and what was just added later by their followers. So we have to ask, can we trust the New Testament as the word of God, and can we trust that there's nothing more to be added? Well, once again, let's see what the Bible itself has to say. Here's our lesson outline. In today's class, we're going to see how the apostles were uniquely chosen and enabled to write the New Testament Scripture. We'll also see how the Bible warns against those who are not chosen from adding to or changing God's Word. We'll also see how the early church responded and recognize the New Testament as God's word, and we'll consider some application questions for our lives today. A lot to talk about, a lot of great information, so I'm looking forward to going through this with you. Let's pray before we go on. Our great God, we do thank you that you have given us your word, that you didn't, you didn't just speak to the disciples and then leave with no record of, of what happened or what you taught and not even a uh impotent record but a full record a a perfect record thank you god because we would have been we would have been lost without without this revelation thank you lord for the completion of this revelation thank you that we are fully equipped for this age Lord i pray that these truths would be you would help me be able to explain these truths well for uh the people this morning, and I pray that you would enable them to pay attention, to take these truths in, and to be encouraged by them. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first passage I want to look at with you today is in the book of John, so please open your Bibles to John 14. John 14, verses 25 to 26, just two verses here. These verses are key understanding why we accept the New Testament as God's revelation. So John 14, verses 25 to 26. Follow along with me as I read. Jesus speaking. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And normally we go through passages a lot longer than that, but that's, that's okay. We, we can do some short passages too. We've read the text. We want to follow our inductive Bible study method, start with observations, just simple observations of the details of the text and the context. Notice the context. We're in the upper room in the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is with his 11 disciples, having just eaten the Passover meal, inaugurated the Lord's Supper. His death is imminent. Judas Iscariot has is already left to betray Jesus. Peter has already been warned that he will deny Jesus 3 times. It's not exactly the most encouraging time to be a disciple of Jesus. But despite these depressing developments, much of this chapter and what follows contains words from Jesus to his disciples of comfort, instruction, and encouragement. In fact, a little later a little later on, we hear Something similar to what is expressed in these two verses. Turn briefly over to John 16. John 16, verses 12 to 15. A little bit of an expansion of what Jesus says here. Still talking to his disciples. Look at what it says. John 16, verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So keep this extra passage in mind as we consider the words in John 14. Let's actually go back to John 14. We now have a sense of the context, but notice a few things about these two specific verses. Notice, first of all, that the language of these verses is very straightforward. See any figures of speech? This is just direct instruction. And notice what Jesus says about himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises that when he leaves, the Father will send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. What precisely is it that the Holy Spirit will do? Jesus says the Spirit will teach the disciples and bring to their remembrance the words of Jesus. Now we've made some observations here. Let's move to our second step and talk about interpretation. I forgot to put up those little details on the slide, but sorry I had to move on to the next one. Interpretation, some questions to ask. Jesus is giving a promise to his disciples about the coming Holy Spirit. Why? What is the purpose of Jesus telling them this? What do you think? Now, could Jesus have left out this instruction? Is it not important? And if it is important, why? consider the context again this is a time where jesus is seeking to comfort his disciples they know that he's about to depart from them that would be a very discouraging thing for multiple reasons now one of those reasons would be the teaching the words of jesus they're not going to have anymore remember one of the things that jesus or that peter says to jesus when jesus says hey do you want to depart from me like all these other people who don't like my teaching and peter responds Where else can we go? You have the words of life. Now, apart from many other reasons why they'd be sad to see Jesus depart, one of those reasons would be we're losing access to the one who has the words of life. We're losing access to his teaching. Who's going to teach us going forward? Who's going to help us understand the truth? And Jesus comforts them by saying, don't worry. When the Father sends the Holy Spirit, not only will he continue to teach you, but he'll bring back to your remembrance all the things that I've taught you. So he's comforting them by showing them they're not going to lose access to his words. They're even going to remember them and know them supernaturally. And now let's take this a step further. Why would the book's writer, the Apostle John, is his gospel, why would he include these words as he writes to his own audience? Well, there's a similar comfort for them. This passage affirms for John's listeners that they have not lost the words of Jesus. That even though Jesus is no longer on the earth, his trustworthy word remains because the apostles, John included, were supernaturally empowered by the Spirit to see, remember, and write Jesus's revelation. This would be a great comfort. This would be a great uh. A great confidence. Really, this ties in with some of the things we've seen in the previous lessons. The apostles' words, recorded in the various letters, do not ultimately come from the apostles, but from where? From God, the Holy Spirit, and you can even say from Christ. It's just like what we read in 2 Peter 1, 19-21, and 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. There's a supernatural nature to the instruction of the apostles because it is enabled empowered by the holy spirit and authorized by christ we could really summarize it in this way how did we get the new testament the holy spirit brought to the apostles perfect remembrance the experiences of the teachings of jesus or the experiences with the teachings of jesus and the spirit also taught the apostles some new things that the apostles did not know or experience before Apostles then wrote down what the Spirit taught them and caused them to remember under the perfect superintending of the Spirit. These writings then were the original and perfect manuscripts of the New Testament. So we can say the New Testament has both divine authorization and divine inspiration. Authorization due to Jesus' promises here in John 14 and 16, but also inspiration is guaranteed as well. The apostolic writings are the God-breathed, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. And this is an important promise, both for John's original audience and for us, because most of the New Testament letters, as far as we can tell, were written about 10 to 30 years after Jesus' ascension. Now, what would happen if you or I tried to describe in detail events that happened 10 to 30 years ago, what would happen? Probably wouldn't be the most accurate record. There'd be a lot of things that we'd forget that might even be important. Or we might misremember things. We think something happened, it didn't really happen. There'd be some, some pretty, there'd be some inaccuracies there. I don't know if you know the experience of with a family member or maybe your spouse. You say, oh, yeah, you remember this thing? And they say, that's not that's not how it happened. That's not really what happened. And the more time goes by, the, the more you have the propensity to make mistakes. But that's not the case when it comes to the apostolic writings. Because of what we have promised in John 14 and 16, God supernaturally empowered the apostles through his Holy Spirit to record perfectly the revelation of Jesus, even 10, 30, 50 years later. Now, there's some debate about the exact dates of the writings of each New Testament book. Let me give you a rough timeline. Christ ascends around AD 30. First book of the New Testament written probably was James or Galatians around AD 45. Most of the other New Testament books were written between A.D. 50 and A.D. 70, uh, when the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed, so before that date. Last books in the New Testament come from the Apostle John, and his works were likely written between A.D. 80 and A.D. 95. His last work, the Book of Revelation, was the last book of the Bible, probably completed around A.D. 95. So, can we trust the accuracy and authority of all these works from the Apostles? Well, hopefully you see we can. And the reason is because Jesus specifically authorized these works by his promise and because the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles to know, remember, and write Jesus's revelation. Now, quick side question. Did Jesus' promise about the Holy Spirit extend beyond the apostles? Were they just the first recipients of the promise? And maybe the Spirit guides others to learn, remember, and declare his revelation accurately today. Is that that the case? Well, yes and no. Christians today are not eyewitnesses of Jesus, unlike the apostles. And we are also not authorized or empowered to speak and write new scripture like the apostles were. Now it is true, other scriptures show us that God has given all Christians illumination and power through the Holy Spirit to understand the scriptures to obey them and to declare the scriptures to others so though we're not quite the same as the apostles the spirit does affect us also empowers us also and this is why we are called many times in the new testament to walk by the spirit walk by the spirit by understanding and putting into practice what the spirit actually says in the word anyways back to the apostles their unique character as eyewitnesses is key to their commission and authority as biblical writers. Now consider how often in the New Testament their firsthand experience is noted. I'll just give you a sampling of some verses. Second Peter 1, 16-18, this is before the section we looked at recently. 2 Peter 1:16 to 16-18 says, Peter writing, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. Consider another statement from John. In 1 John, verses 1, 1 to 3. 1 John, 1, 1 to 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I'll give you another statement from John. In his gospel, John 21, verses 24 to 25, John says this. John 21, verses 24 to 25. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did which, If they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So from our examination so far, we can see, really, three powerful reasons to trust the New Testament Scriptures as God's Word. First, it was authorized by Christ himself. Uh, Second, it was given by eyewitnesses of Christ And third, it was superintended by the Holy Spirit. We have the promise about it. We have eyewitnesses. Those are the best kinds of witnesses. And then we have the Holy Spirit superintending, supernatural, prompting, moving, protection, production of the New Testament word. This is all through the apostles. Now you might say, wait a second. I know something about the New Testament authors. Were they all really apostles? I mean, Luke wasn't an apostle, was he? What about Jude? I I don't think he was an apostle, was he? How can their books be considered apostolic and benefits of these things we've noted? Well, the explanation is actually kind of simple in response to that question. These other books, like Jude or Luke or Mark, They were written by associates of the apostles under the oversight of the apostles. And so, really, they're still apostolic. Let me show you a chart detailing this idea. I've listed for you the different books of the New Testament and the uh, the apostle who's associated with that book. I won't go through all of it with you, but you can just uh, glance through it. You can see, though, that there is an apostle associated with every book, either writing it directly or overseeing its production. Therefore, the facts regarding the apostolic and eyewitness nature of the New Testament book still stands. In fact, first-hand experience with Jesus was apparently a requirement for being an apostle, as seen in Acts chapter 1 when the apostles are choosing a replacement for Judas Iscariot. They looked for someone who had been with them and who was a true witness and testimony, a testifier of Jesus. Additionally, the apostles validated their unique offices by obvious and miraculous signs, obvious and verifiable miraculous signs. The apostles had the unique responsibility and empowerment as eyewitnesses to write scripture. And as I say, we do not have that empowerment we don't have that same empowerment therefore only the apostles only the apostles writings constitute the new testament scriptures and since all the apostles eventually perished no new scripture can be added added today this is why we say the scriptures are complete jesus commissioned he gave promises to the apostles but not to those beyond them And the, the scriptures are complete now to further Illustrate this, to further illustrate the completeness of the scriptures, let's examine a profound warning that appears in the last book of the Bible. Turn over to Revelation 22, please. Revelation 22, and we're looking at verses 18 to 19. Just another two verses here. Last book of the New Testament, Revelation, and last chapter, Revelation 22. Here's what John the Apostle writes. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Now again, short passage, but we can make some observations. First, note the context again. Our author is the Apostle John. He's writing to believers in the seven churches of Asia. He's writing in late first century, AD 90 to 95. He's been exiled on the island of Patmos and is suffering under apparently Emperor Domitian's persecution. In chronology of the New Testament, Revelation then is the last book. What is it that the author has just described before our passage? Well, if you know Revelation, or if you glance back to chapters 20 to 22, you know that John describes the final judgment, last judgment, and the coming of new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, the end of history. And after these verses we read comes the end of the book, really, and where we're told to beckon and to look forward to Jesus's coming. But let's take a little bit closer look at these two verses. Notice that we have two warnings in this passage. We're told not to add to, not to take away from the words of the prophecy. And there are severe consequences for for violating these warnings. The plagues described in the book, and if you know the plagues of Revelation, they are quite serious. They are very painful. They are very uh, horrific and destructive. He says, few tamper with this prophecy. The plagues described in this book will come upon you. And if you tamper with this prophecy, the person, that person will be removed from the blessings of this book, even access to the tree of life and to the holy city that comes at the end of history. Now, what is this book or the book of the book of this prophecy that John refers to in verse 18? Well, according to context, it must be the letter of revelation itself. This is a work of prophecy that has much to say about prophecy. And he says, this this word of prophecy, this book, you do not dare add to it or take away from it. Okay, so we've made these basic observations, but let's again talk about interpretation. Why did John write these words? Well, one intention is pretty straightforward. From the Apostle John and through him, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, That is, do not even think of altering the words of this particular letter. The consequences of doing so are dire. That's a pretty straightforward reason for writing this, but we often hear these verses used as a justification regarding the whole Scripture. These words are interpreted to mean that the New Testament set of Scripture, the New Testament canon, is being closed. Therefore, do not add or take away from the words of the Bible. Is that a legitimate interpretation? Do these verses really mean one cannot claim any new revelation after after John wrote this book? Well, Revelation is the last book of the Bible from the last apostle talking about the last part of history. So it does make a certain amount of sense to give this closing warning. I mean, what more could be said and who would say it? So there's something to that idea as these words applying to all the Bible, but there's something else worth noticing. And that is, this isn't the only time the Bible has warned readers about adding to or taking away from scripture. Consider the following verses, and maybe you've read some of these before. Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 4.2 says, Moses writing here, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I command you. Further in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy twelve thirty two, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to or take away from it. And Proverbs, book of Proverbs chapter 30, verses five and six. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Now these verses sound very similar in their warnings as to what we read in Revelation 22, right? Don't add to, don't take away from the words God has given you. But you may notice there's a potential problem. These other statements come much earlier in the Bible, after which there was much more scripture added. He says don't add to these words, but... Plenty of people did add to those words. And God affirmed those added words as his own. All right, how do we reconcile this? On the one hand, we are warned not to add to God's words, and yet on the other hand, prophets and apostles did just that. How can this be? Well, I think it all comes down to who is it that did add to the words of Scripture? Who added additional Scripture? The people we call apostles and prophets, what is unique about them? They were specifically chosen and commissioned by God to do so. They added to God's word because God called them to add to his word. God commissioned them. God empowered them to add to his word. And this is the key. This is the key to understanding these statements throughout the Bible and here in Revelation. Unless you are officially commissioned by God to give new revelation and you have all that goes with that, the accompanying miraculous signs to validate your word. And of course, I'm not talking about the shady and controlled miraculous signs of the so-called prophets and apostles of our day. Unless you are one of those officially commissioned and officially validated persons, you have no right to claim new word from the Lord. This is the warning that John is giving in Revelation. This hasn't stopped. I I see your hand, Roy. I'll come back to it in just a second. This hasn't stopped many people from doing so, from attempting to add to God's word, even though they don't have authorization. We see this even in the Bible. For example, God condemned the supposed word of the Lord from false prophets the Old Testament, even in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, verse 21 Jeremiah 23, 21, God says, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. The False revelation was a problem in the Old Testament, and it was a problem in the New Testament. New Testament church, we read this warning from Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 to 18. 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 18. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And they upset the faith of some. So these guys, Hymenaeus Philetus, they, they came up with their own revelation. They said, oh, resurrection already happened. That wasn't God's message. That was false. And it wasn't just in the Bible. Spurious revelation has been a part of church history ever since. A man named Marcion... Around A.D. 150, he rejected all the New Testament writings except those of Paul. And he reinterpreted the Old Testament to reveal, to assert, that there were actually two gods in the universe. There was a good, saving God in the New Testament. And there was an evil, creator, cruel or evil, cruel creator God in the Old Testament. And it's the good God who's trying to save us from that evil Old Testament God. That was Marcion's revelation. Manus. Whose, uh, his followers are known as the Manichaeans. or the Manichaeans. In the 200s AD, he created new scriptures that were a blend of Judaism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, and even Buddhism. Muhammad, he created new scriptures in the 600s, which were a blend of Judaism, Christianity, and Arabian tribal religion. And in more recent times, Joseph Smith, he added scriptures. He had new scriptures in the 1800s, and he founded Mormonism. All of these men have wanted to claim a new kind of apostleship or a new role as prophets of God, but God did not send them. Their claims to speak for God came from their own imagination. While they sought to use the Old Testament and the New Testament to support their new revelation, they had to alter the Bible to do so, directly violating the command that we see in the Bible in Revelation and throughout the scriptures. Convenient in each one of these prophets was the inability for anyone to verify their claims of being a prophet. These prophets could not, these supposed prophets, could not produce verifiable miraculous signs, and when they contradicted scripture, they claimed the original scriptures were corrupted. They, and they alone, had the true translations and interpretations. There is no way to to put a check on that because it didn't agree with already revealed revelation. They didn't have miraculous signs. and They didn't have others who were prophets with them. They were all alone. And they claimed new revelation. Reality is, of course, that these were not God's prophets. They were not declarers of God's scripture. They were not officially commissioned from God. And they have no authorization in the scriptures to do what they do. Roy, did you want to say something? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's a great point, Roy. Thanks for mentioning that. Just to restate what you said briefly, Even though we have these warnings in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, not to add to God's word, there is at at the same time clearly expectation and promise about additional revelation. You mentioned those prophecies having to do with the Messiah and the New Covenant. There's clearly going to have to be new revelation uh, uh, as these things come to pass. Even more than that, we can go to even the words of Moses, where he says, the Lord is going to raise up a prophet like me from among you, and you are to listen to that prophet. And we see in the New Testament that ultimately is talking about Christ. So there was the expectation that there would be more representatives of God and they would speak in, uh, new revelation from God. But you had these warnings at the same time. And so that's why I'm saying our understanding of, of these warnings and how they fit with these uh, fit with the rest of Scripture and even the promises of new revelation is that it's all about divine authorization. Are you a divinely authorized and commissioned revealer of God's truth, or are you just taking that taking that responsibility upon yourself? Now one thing, and this I think is is worth pointing out, and that is we should not forget that there there will be prophets again. I mean if we look at the book of Revelation, we have those two prophets standing as witnesses and, and doing miraculous signs. So it's not as if prophecy has totally ceased. It's not as if there there will be no more revelation, but for this age, there will not be. God has given everything that we need for this age. And you remember even in Revelation where John talks about the what the seven thunders uttered, but he wasn't allowed to write it down. That's something that God is only going to reveal later. There have been these these different ages where God said, this is this is a, this is what I'm going to reveal for this age, and that's it. This is all that my people need. And for our age. Uh, for the church age we have we have the complete revelation because this is all that God has authorized, and he's given his his authorization he's given proof of that even in the scriptures. I'll say a little bit more about that again, why we believe the canon is closed, even though we read regarding what revelation says about um, prophets in even in the tribulation period and afterwards, the apostles saw themselves as foundation layers, not as continuous sources of revelation with an apostolic office to be passed down. Of course, this is in direct contrast to the teaching of the Catholic Church. They claim that Peter's office as the chief apostle and leader of the church, that has been inherited by various popes to the present day. But turn to Ephesians for a second. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 to 20 Paul is speaking here to some newly converted Gentiles and he's talking to them about how they have full salvation inheritance, full salvation blessings along with the Jews. But in Ephesians 2, 19 to 20, he says something very poignant about the apostolic office. Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that is you Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built... On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Now this is very this should be very striking because the Paul says the apostles appointed by Jesus Himself, they were responsible to lay the gospel foundation. They declared, they further explained the revelation of Jesus, and having fulfilled their appointed task, the apostolic office was no longer needed. And it disappeared. Once you lay the foundation, there's no need to lay another foundation or to keep laying a foundation. In fact, Paul says, no, we're building on the foundation now. That's what you guys are, you Gentile Ephesians. You're being built on the foundation that has been laid, that is being laid by the apostles. By the apostles and prophets. Indeed, rather than instructing their followers to appoint new apostles or prophets to find out more revelation from God, What is the instruction that we see in the New Testament from Peter and Paul and others regarding God's revelation? It isn't to look for what's new. Rather, it's to hold on to what was old. Again and again, Paul, Peter, and others, they say, don't forget what we told you. Hold fast to it. Cling to it. Contend for the faith, as Jude says, that was once for all delivered to the saints the apostles recognized the uniqueness of their own office, their own role as declarers and chroniclers of the revelation of Jesus. And with their foundation laid, the New Testament scriptures were complete. So, coming back to our verses in Revelation. Though John writes this morning specifically about his prophecy, the book of Revelation, the concept of not adding to or taking away from the revealed word as a whole, holds because of the position of John's book as the last book on the last topics, but more than that, because of the apostles' unique role as the commissioned writers of the New Testament. The revelation of Jesus, the climactic revelation of, of all of God's revelation is complete. There's nothing more to be added. You dare not add to it or take away from it because Christ's specifically authorized representatives have accomplished it. They have given it. So there's no more that needs to be added. Now, what about the early church? Did they understand this? What did they think about the apostles, about the New Testament, and about the scriptures as a whole? Let's transition now to talking about the early church. It's commonly claimed by skeptics that the books of the New Testament were chosen many hundreds of years after the fact. They allege that because the ideas of particular books fit with the teaching of certain people in power at the time, that many, those books were accepted and many other books were rejected. These rejected books conflicted. They merely conflicted with the ideas of the powerful, the influential, or the elite. Well, these accusations were totally unfounded. The early church pastors and elders didn't simply choose the books they wanted to be in, to be scripture rather they worked to recognize the books that god had produced and chosen as scripture and a primary factor and their decision making was apostolic authorship primary factor in recognizing what is truly scripture according to the early church was apostolic authorship understand that recognizing the apostolic works was a process not every book of the new testament was immediately universally recognized Some books were accepted as scripture for a while and then determined not to be apostolic. And other works that church leaders weren't quite sure about were later recognized to indeed be apostolic and canonical, the authoritative word of God. These early church shepherds, though, were very committed to knowing and proclaiming what works were actually scripture, because they were charged, as we are, to hold on to the word of the apostles. If you're going to hold on to the word, then you need to know what the word of the apostles actually was. So discerning apostolic works and preserving them was a main task of the persecuted Roman church, the early church. But it's not as if they were in the dark for hundreds of years. As soon as the apostles wrote the original letters of the New Testament, those letters were preserved, copied, and circulated as scripture on the same level as the Old Testament. We won't get into it now, but there are several statements in the New Testament where the apostles themselves recognize they're writing scripture, or they recognize each other's works as writing scripture. Paul even quotes Luke, I think it's Paul, maybe it might be Peter, he quotes Luke as scripture. So they they understood they were writing scripture. And it was on the same level as the Old Testament. And the early church understood that. So there's good reason for us to believe because they were recognized this right away. We've received scripture, copy it, preserve it, pass it around. It's good a reason to believe that most, if not all of the New Testament scriptures we have today, were recognized as scripture by the second century church. That is in the 100s AD. They, they understood as they encountered these different writings, they say, oh, this is, this is the apostolic word, this is scripture. Why do we say that even by the second century, it was recognized? Well, one reason is because of the Muratorian fragment this is a partial text that we have received from about 170 A.D., and it lists 20 of the 27 New Testament books as universally recognized among the Roman churches and mentions a few other books that were uh, recognized by some but not quite universally accepted. This shows us that the early church is aware of Scripture, and they are coming, they, they, there's a large amount of agreement as to what constitutes Scripture the New Testament scripture. Admittedly, it's true that lists of New Testament books are rare in the early church writings. You don't see that many lists, but the lists begin to appear more and more in reaction to heresies denying the works of certain apostles or trying to add to them. People like Marcion or Manus or even uh, the Montanists, they As people began to mess with Revelation, what actually was God's revelation, it it caused the early church leaders to say, "We, we need to get straight. What actually is the New Testament? What actually is the apostolic word? And this is really just like the teaching of the Trinity. It wasn't that that doctrine was developed or adopted at a particular council. Merely that it was articulated at a council in response to a growing heresy in the 300s. It's not that the Council of Nicaea created the doctrine of the Trinity. It was always there, but it was specifically articulated in reaction to Arianism. It's the same thing when it comes to the canonicity of the New Testament. The reason that we see more and more lists and we see a greater effort to specifically articulate which works are apostolic, it's in response to false teaching. And often this is how it works in church history. Doctrine is clarified. Doctrine is articulated in response to error. It's not that it's created. It's always been there. Now, the first complete list of the 27 books of the New Testament comes from a letter from Athanasius in 367 AD. This is followed soon after by two church councils in Western Europe, the Synod of Hippo in 393 and the Council of Carthage Carthage in 397. They affirm the same list. These 27 books, the same 27 books we have today, they say, these are the universally these are the the largely recognized scripture and since that time there's largely been no controversy this list has not been changed in the church ever since what's the new testament it's these 27 books what's the apostolic word it's these 27 books that controversy really ceases after the fourth century now what was the criteria that these early church fathers were using to assess the various works that they had received the different pieces of criteria, but I want to list some of the main ones for you. The first two are the most important. Was the book, if you're going to figure out whether something is God's breathed word, you first ask, was the book or letter written by an apostle or under the direction of the apostle? Like I said, they know that the apostles charged them to hold on to their word, so they want to know whether it's the apostle's word or not. Does it claim to be written by an apostle? Does it demonstrate that it was written by an apostle? The second one is also very important. Did the writings conform to what the church received from the apostles and is always taught? Again, this criterion is justified by scripture. You remember what Paul said in Galatians. Even if we or an angel from heaven comes to you with a gospel different than the gospel we originally preached to you, let that person be accursed. Let that person be anathema. Let them be damned. You hold to the gospel that saved you. You hold to the gospel that we originally gave to you. So the early church took that seriously. Is this the gospel that we've always taught, the one that we originally received? Do these writings conform to that? Do they affirm that? Do they teach that? So these first two criteria were the most important. Does it confirm the apostolic teaching we've received? And does it demonstrate itself to be written by an apostle? Along with that, we have these other criteria. Did the writing resound with the truth of God? Did it speak with a voice of authority as the word of God and not merely the words of men? Obviously, if a piece of writing is just derivative of other writing, not really say anything new, just quoting what was already said, or if it's only a platform for the ideas of men, it cannot be scripture. Further, were these writings used from the earliest of times? This is according, according to the adage, if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. We're looking for apostolic writings, and those are ancient. We're not looking for new work. So it might sound great, but if it's from the 200s AD, it's not scripture. And finally did most churches accept these writings as the New Testament canon. Again, this is not a definitive criterion, but if it is scripture, it should be able to be recognized by more than one source. If you're the only one saying this is scripture, that's that's probably a bad sign. So, this was not like like I'm I'm trying to illustrate. This is not a formal counselor process this is not like okay let's guys let's all get together and have a specific council and we'll figure out what god's word is no this was a process this was somewhat informal just different church leaders different different christians than in the early church just reading circulating talking about discussing analyzing all in an effort to recognize what is god's scripture what is the apostolic word what is the new testament they want to affirm that so that they can uh, hold on to what the apostles charged them to hold on to. And really what the Lord Christ has charged them to hold on to. To sum up all this historical information. New Testament scriptures were completed by the apostles between AD 45 and 95. Early church recognized and circulated most of these works as scripture by AD 150 to 175. And all controversy over scripture had ceased by about AD 400. We can come back now to our overarching theme. We can trust that God's word is complete and that the New Testament is God's word because and you're going to see the different things that we've seen today. The apostles were eyewitnesses and officially commissioned by Jesus and supernaturally enabled by the Holy Spirit to remember and teach the word of God. The apostles themselves warned those who were not commissioned scripture writers against adding to or taking away from the scripture. The apostles were responsible for laying a foundation of doctrine which the apostles themselves affirmed they completed. And the early church affirmed that apostolic authority was determined in their own process of discerning which writings were really God-breathed. Now, there's much more we could say about the writing of the New Testament, the canon, and why we... Why we believe what we do, but this will have to suffice for today's class. If you're interested, you can find a lot more information about this topic on the Answers in Genesis website. There are also a number of good books um, that that you can check out. Of course, if you have a specific question, you can always email me at my email address, and I'll do my best to answer it. Any comments and questions of what I've shared with you so far? All right, well, let's consider a few more application questions before we close. As I say, uh, application is an important part of Bible study. We don't just observe and interpret, but we also want to apply. So this is part of our inductive Bible study method. Here's our first application question that I would like you to consider. It is commonly claimed that the Bible is put together by the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. How would you respond to such a claim? What would you say? Well there there are two approaches there are two ways of answering this question really they they go together. We know that this is a this is a myth. It's a commonly perpetuated myth but this is not true. We know from the we know from the Bible itself that scripture was being recognized as scripture long before 325 AD as I said the apostles are affirming that themselves. But again, we can, we can even point to archaeological evidence and the texts that have been recovered from ancient times. We have the Muratorian fragment that's showing that Scripture was being recognized even by 170 AD. No, it was not determined by the Council of Nicaea uh, in 325. And besides, the Council of Nicaea, as, as far as we know, had nothing to say about the Bible's canonicity. It was specifically convened to deal with the Arian controversy, those who were denying Jesus's divinity. It was not convened to determine what the Bible was or even to discuss what were the recognized scriptures. That wasn't the Council of Nicaea. So multiple reasons why such an assertion is a complete myth. But similarly, it's another question. How do we respond to the claims that the New Testament was written many years after the lives of Jesus and the apostles and therefore cannot be accurate? Now, again, hopefully you've seen from today's class the answers to this question. This again is a faulty claim because we have the guarantee in the Bible that even though the apostles are living decades after the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, they've been supernaturally empowered to remember and to learn new things by the Holy Spirit and perfectly and uh, completely give Jesus' revelation. Time going by doesn't affect that for the apostles. And as to the contention that the books of the bible the books of the new testament are written many years after the apostles again we can just look at the historical record we have and see that that's not true many uh, many works outside the bible are quoting the words of the apostles even in the second century even in the early second century which means they had to be written before that you can't quote it if it hadn't been written yet and even many liberal scholars those who don't actually believe the bible More and more, they have to concede that, yeah, these New Testament, these New Testament works, they were written in the first century, which is what Christians have been saying all along. So again, this claim is, there's nothing to it. We have the promises in the scripture and we have the record of history to show that this is not true. These, this revelation of Jesus has been preserved and preserved accurately, or not just preserved accurately, but written accurately. It's another question. How does the Apocrypha, those writings from the intertestamental period included in many Catholic Bibles, how how does the Apocrypha figure in this discussion of biblical canonicity? Well, it's worth noting that in the early church, these books, if you're not familiar with the books of the Apocrypha, it's not super important that you become familiar with it, but they include things like the books of Maccabees, the book of Judith, the book of Tobit, sections of Daniel and sections of Esther that were added. In the early church, some of these works were considered helpful, but they were not considered God-breathed scripture. It's interesting that the earliest copies of the Septuagint we have, remember that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they include the Apocrypha. Now, the Septuagint was the early church's Old Testament Bible. I mean, we have many Greek speakers in the Roman Empire, so they're using the Septuagint. Though they included the Apocrypha, they also made clear that it is not divine scripture. Jerome is a very uh, good example of this. Jerome was early church father in the 300s. He's famous for his Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate. And that's the actually the translation of the Bible that the Roman Catholic Church uses and affirms. He included the Apocrypha in his translation of the Bible, but he also specifically and very obviously stated that the Apocrypha is helpful, but not scripture. It says, do not consider, even though I'm including this, do not consider this on par with the rest of what I've translated, the rest of what I've included. This is helpful, but it's not scripture. This can be encouraging, this can be inspiring, this is an interesting historical record, but it's not the divine scripture. Now, the Catholic Church itself did not consider the Apocrypha to be scripture until the Catholic Counter-Reformation in the 1500s. We had the Reformation, Lots of uh, lots of problems for the Catholic Church, and then the Counter Reformation. They part of one of the things that they did was they affirmed the Apocrypha as the Bible. They said this is also God. This is also God breathed. Now, why did they do that? Well, the affirmation of the Apocrypha came partly from the papacy's wish to affirm Jerome's entire Vulgate translation as inspired and perfect. Remember, one of the things that the reformers were pointing out, and not just the reformers, many. Um, many biblical scholars at that time were saying, hey, the Latin translation we have does not accurately translate certain words from the original Hebrew and Greek. And the Catholic Church's response, rather than admit that, was to say, no, the Vulgate is entirely inspired. Even the Apocrypha is inspired. So that was one impetus. But the second was the Catholic Church had become uh, used to certain doctrines and certain practices that are not biblical, but they do appear in the Apocrypha. And so... They saw that it would be useful to affirm the Apocrypha in order to validate those practices, things like praying for the dead. So we should not, we have no reason to affirm the Apocrypha as scripture, even though the Catholic Church has done so since the 1500s. All of this, I've been giving you a lot of maybe more technical information, but don't miss the main point. This is really the main question that we've been posing over the last couple of lessons having to do with the scriptures, and it's one that I want to bring you back to. Considering all of this, how do you treat God's word? How do you treat the New Testament? How do you treat the Old Testament? God specifically commissioned his apostles and apostolic associates to give the church, including you, this life-giving and life-equipping word. So how do you think God wants you to respond to it? How do you think God will react to you if you respond to his word wrongly or inappropriately? As you go through the rest of your time of worship today and as you go home and afterwards, please consider, continue to consider this question. How do you treat God's word and how do you think God wants you to treat his word? His word is a great gift. Consider what our lives would be like if we didn't have the New Testament or if we didn't have the Old Testament. But so often we take that for granted. Not only that we have it in the original languages, but we have it in good English translations. How do you think God wants wants you to respond to that situation? So we've talked through why we can trust the books of the Old Testament, why we can trust the books of the New Testament as God's word. Now, next week, we'll talk further about the modern claims of new revelation and prophecy. This is kind of one of, the, one of the tensions, right? We see prophets in the New Testament. We see prophets in the Old Testament. And we even see in Revelation that there will be certain prophets again. How do we know there aren't prophets today? Okay, maybe they're not writing new scripture. Maybe that was, that was the climactic revelation of Jesus and the apostles. But maybe we still got prophets today. Maybe they do have something to say in terms of God's revelation. Well, we're going to talk about that next week. We'll see how we ought to test such claims of self-proclaimed prophets and how we ought to respond to those who follow and believe such prophets. Let's close as we finish today. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, what a great comfort it must have been to the apostles to hear that they're not going to lose your word. That more than that, they would be able to understand it better. They'd be able to remember it perfectly. They'd be able to Proclaim it, and they would be continually taught. All those things that you wanted to teach them, but you couldn't teach them, your spirit taught them. But well, thank you that you not only gave that to them, but you've given it to us. We thank you, God, that your word does not pass away, that you have not only promised to give the word, but to preserve it, and even so gracious to allow us to have that preserved word. God, we know that with this great blessing comes a great responsibility. This is the word that we must know. This is the word that we must hear and study. This is the word that we must put into practice. Not just because you deserve it as God, but because that's the way to blessing. That's the way of wisdom. So God, I pray that each listener would be appreciating that and they would love you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll see you next week.